Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Pushkin. Previously, on Deep Cover. Sort of like I got on a train track um, that was clearly the wrong train track. And at some point, you're just thinking, crap, how do I stop this train from, like, going off the rails? When Brooke went missing, her mama was very, very upset as if she knew Brooke wasn't coming home. The NYPD cop calls me and says, yep, she's Brooke. You can clear your case. So I said, I'm not happy with that. I want DNA. When she didn't show up to give DNA, she was in the wind. John Campbell had a million questions. Like, who was this mysterious student at Columbia University? John was increasingly convinced that she was not really Brooke Henson, that he was dealing with an imposter, especially after she ducked that DNA test which made him wonder, who was she? Did she have anything to do with the disappearance of the real Brooke Henson? And then there was the most important question of all. Where was this mystery woman now? The obvious first move was to ask Columbia for help. So John says he reached out to the university's director of investigations in technology, then sent him a subpoena explaining the entire situation. John requested Brooks' records, including any photos, letters of reference, essays, student loan forms, that kind of stuff. And he started faxing them down, and I got about 30 pages or so, and then it just, it was like half a sheet. And then he called me, and he said lawyers walked into his office and ripped him off of the, the whole file off of the fax. So there's John, standing by the fax machine, with some files in his hands. He says he got a few documents, including Brooks' college admissions essay. And then the transmission was interrupted. What he had so far was tantalizing. 
The essay said she'd grown up in a tiny town in South Carolina, and that much was true. The real Brooke Henson was from Traveler's Rest. But the essay also described a super-religious childhood, and that definitely didn't match up. So what was going on here? John felt if he could just get the rest of these files, he'd find the clues that would tell him who this woman really was and where she might be now. So John, he was on a mission. He just needed to outfox Columbia University. I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, season three, Never Seen Again. Episode two. The Starman. According to John Campbell, officials at Columbia told him that they would no longer cooperate with him unless he got a federal subpoena. Now, this is a technical distinction, but it's an important one. John had sent a state subpoena from Greenville County, South Carolina. And Columbia was basically saying, no, 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 we don't recognize that. You're out of your jurisdiction. We need a federal subpoena. And of course, they said that because they thought, well, some small-town detective in South Carolina is not going to be able to get a federal subpoena. John may have been a small-town detective, but he did have some powerful connections. In fact, he knew exactly whom to call. And this becomes really important, so bear with me for a sec while I give you a little backstory. A few years before this, when John first started working on the Brooke Henson case, he wanted to get an office computer. He didn't have one at the time. And he felt if he was going to pursue this case seriously, he needed one. You know, to take advantage of things like spreadsheets and the internet. So, he asked the chief for some money to buy one. His chief apparently said, sorry, don't have the funds. John, ever determined, started making inquiries, asking other law enforcement guys, hey, what's the best way to get a free computer? And, turns out, they had an answer for him. Call the Secret Service. Yeah, Those agents with the earpieces who run alongside the presidential motorcades. But the advice was, don't just ask them for a laptop. Ask to do a case with them. Because apparently, everyone knew. Do a case with the Secret Service, they seize everything and give it right back to local law enforcement. You telling me that, like, you work with the Secret Service deliberately so that you could, if you bust some guys with the computers, you can keep it? Yes. It's how you do it on the municipal level when you have no money. Now, in case you didn't realize this, the Secret Service does a whole lot more than protect the president. It also investigates financial crimes and chases down counterfeiters, you know, people who print fake money. And John's like, I can find some guys like that. Because as it turns out, at the time, there was someone in Traveler's Rest passing out phony $20 bills. It looked like they were being made with an inkjet printer. Anyway, John puts the word out among the local businesses. He says, call me if you see anything suspicious. So one of the businesses was Burger King. And 
this girl from Burger King calls. She goes, hey, those guys are back and they, they gave me a fake 20 again. What do I do? And he said, tell them to be a few minutes for their fries. <laughs> he's laughing now, right? But at the time, he's like, here's my big chance to bust some counterfeiters and befriend the Secret Service and, you know, get a free computer. They're waiting for their fries. And we were right down the street. So we come zooming in behind them. And uh, we come running up to the car and the guy has this big wad of 20s and he crams it down into his drink and we grab the drink and everything. We pull the thing of 20s up and the ink is just dripping off of the 20s. These guys he's busted, they're local college students looking for some free Whoppers. John calls the Secret Service, tells them he's busted some counterfeiters. And the Secret Service is pleased. So pleased that they continue to work cases with John. Eventually, they even give him an award for his work on another counterfeiting case. So the Secret Service guy said, you did such a good job on that. They sent uh, a thing up to Washington and got me a, a thing, a citation thing. So I had that on my wall, and it was signed by the director of the Secret Service. You know, you did a great job. What really made John happy, though, was back in their dorm room, those counterfeiters had a sweet computer, which soon became John's computer. Score, right? But the real windfall came later. Fast forward a few years. There's John standing by his fax machine with half a set of records from the woman who claimed to be Brooke Henson. And he's got a big, fat snub from Columbia University, which was demanding a federal subpoena, a potential dead end for John. But turns out, All John had to do was look up on his wall at that fancy citation thing from the Secret Service and remember, he had some friends, some pretty powerful friends, who could, if they were so inclined, tell Columbia University to shut up and play ball. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. 
So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. If you're looking for another surprising investigation into the criminal justice system, check out Bear Brook from New Hampshire Public Radio, hosted by me, Jason Moon. Bear Brook is back with an update on our second season. Jason Carroll is serving life in prison for a murder he says he did not commit. Now, the biggest development in the case in 35 years could lead us one step closer to the truth. Listen to the complete second season of Bear Brook, now available wherever you get your podcasts. The person that John Campbell connected with at the Secret Service is a guy named Don Long. I am an assistant special agent in charge with the Secret Service. I've been employed with the agency for about 30 years now, and I'm currently located in our office in Columbia, South Carolina. If Don sounds like a clean-cut, no-nonsense lawman, well, that's because he is. Don is not an obsessive X-Files fan or a guy who buys into a lot of conspiracy theories. In this way, you might say that he and John are kind of like opposites. Even so, Don is quick to give John props. John is a very thorough investigator. If you had a case that you wanted somebody to, to really turn over every single stone to look for a possible uh, suspect, uh, you would certainly want someone like John on the case. Don says that back in 2006, he wanted to help John if he could. And he was intrigued by the Brooke Henson case. But he couldn't just fire off a federal subpoena as a favor to John. This was a serious matter. And if the Secret Service got involved, it would become an active partner in this investigation. So Don's first question was, what is this case exactly? Don says he conferred with the assistant U.S. attorney in Greenville, who would be prosecuting this case if it went forward. And the two of them, they debated what to do. In the end, it was decided that they should open up a fraud and identity theft investigation and see what was in those files at Columbia. And just like that, John now had a partner, Don Long, the Secret Service agent. And even though this was now technically a federal investigation, John was still, as he told me, a backseat driver. I might add, a very active backseat driver. So, off goes that federal subpoena. Kind of amazingly, Columbia University rejects it. Basically, Columbia just tells the assistant U.S. attorney, a guy named Walt Wilkins, sorry, no dice. 
and Walt lost his mind. Like, are you kidding me? You're Columbia University. This is a federal grand jury subpoena. If you can't give us these records, you come down and talk to the judge and explain why. It wasn't clear why Columbia was refusing to cooperate. Maybe it was just trying to protect the privacy of a student. Or perhaps, as Don Long speculated, the university was embarrassed that it had possibly been duped by an imposter. I reached out to Columbia University, by the way, and they declined to comment. In the end, Don flew up to New York to speak with officials at the university, in person. And at long last, Columbia relented. A little while later, investigators had the complete records for one Brooke Henson. The records from Columbia included a bunch of documents. There were two admissions essays. Together, they presented an intimate portrait of the young woman who claimed to be Brooke Henson. I asked my producer, Amy Gaines, if she would read from these essays. My young life consisted almost entirely of events that would take place inside four church walls. My parents didn't feel that a public education was the right place to teach their children about the world and the skills it would take to survive in that world. Along with three other children, my brother and I were educated under the tutelage of my mother and another woman from church. In spite of what is considered by others to be a horrific environment to educate children, somehow my brother and I excelled in our academic surroundings. Weird, right? Because the real Brooke Henson, she grew up in a house without a lot of rules, with laid-back parents. The essay goes on to say the moment that truly defined her life was when her mom was dying of cancer. She says she took care of her mother, and that in her spare time, she found solace by playing chess online. I love to dive into a world filled with 64 squares, 32 pieces, and a never-ending supply of new combinations to learn and master. This black and white world made sense to me. I was in control of strategy, of risk, and ultimately of death. When her mother passed away, she said something within her shifted. After I came to terms with losing her and living my life without her, I felt very free in a strange way. I saw the world as something I could explore and conquer. I never really looked outside my little town and my little life until that life had disappeared and was no longer an option for me. John Campbell read all of this with great interest. But what was it exactly? It seemed like a work of fiction, confirmation that they were dealing with a con artist. After all, the real Brooke Henson was a free spirit who liked to hang out and party with her friends, not some Christian who played chess. Even so, John found himself wondering, could this possibly be true? At least some of it? Like, did the real Brooke Henson have some secret life that he didn't know about? Was she, for example, a chess player? John forced himself to be methodical about the whole thing. And just to vet this properly, I called Travis West High School and I said, do you have a chess team? And the lady over at Travis West about fell out of the chair. When she stopped laughing, she said, no, honey, we don't have any kind of a chess chess club at Travis West. Travis West is known for their football <laughs> They don't have a chess club. They've never had a chess club. You're going to find anybody in this area that plays chess. But even if these essays were all lies, they were lies that might prove useful down the road. 
You didn't need to be a detective to see that. I myself have always believed the old adage, the best liars always stick close to the truth. And so, maybe this imposter, whoever she was, was a chess player who was raised in a strict Christian home and who lost her mother at a tender age. Maybe these were clues that needed to be taken seriously, a glimpse into who this mystery woman really was. There were other clues in the Columbia records. The young woman claiming to be Brooke Henson had gotten her GED. She had aced the SATs. But once she arrived at Columbia, she often failed to attend class. In an email, she confided in her academic advisor. I haven't decided whether I will attempt school next year at Columbia, but clearly I will need to take a closer look at the financial aspects of it. She ends by saying, Sometimes being without my mom is tough when I have a big decision to make. The picture that emerged was of an ambitious young woman who was struggling. At some point in the investigation, John got his hands on a rather curious photo. It looked like it was taken at a military school, and it showed a slender young woman dressed in a formal gown, the sort you'd wear to a gala. The woman didn't really look like Brooke Henson. She was standing next to several sharply dressed cadets. John studied the photo closely. So I had a loop, like, you know, magnifying, like a photographer's loop. And I had this picture, and I'm down on this picture like this. Have you ever seen the movie The Good Shepherd? John, by the way, loves making pop culture references, especially to spy stories. In The Good Shepherd, there's this CIA agent, played by Matt Damon, who spends much of the movie analyzing magnified images from this one mysterious photograph. Anyway, John was determined to figure out, among other things, where was this photo taken? Kept narrowing it down based on what was on their uniforms. I sent the picture to VMI, the Citadel, um, several other places that were uh, military colleges. In one picture, you could see they had a sash. He said, we don't wear sashes. Citadel doesn't wear sashes. Um, The architecture in the back was an arch. Nobody had that. And eventually, we got back to West Point. So there was a West Point connection, but John didn't know exactly what to make of that. There was one other document in the Columbia records that caught the attention of both John Campbell and also of Don Long at the Secret Service. It was a letter of recommendation for Brooke from a professor named Dr. Shirley Fleischman. The letter mentioned that Brooke had visited her home, that she was a friend of her son. This seemed promising. Maybe the Fleischmann family could tell them more about who this young woman really was. When I called Mr. Fleischmann, I said, I'm John Campbell. I'm with Travis Rose Police Department. I'm calling about a girl you might know named Brooke Henson. And he said, I wondered when you were going to call. And I said, what do you, what do you mean when I was going to call? <laughs> what in the world? How would he know that I was going to call him? He said, when my son brought her home, I, I knew she was trouble." According to John, Mr. Fleischman told him that this young woman, this Brooke Henson, had dated his son for about a year. And at that time, his son was a cadet at West Point. After the break, what John Campbell and Don Long uncovered when they spoke with the Fleischmans.
Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, N.A. member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered... How can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first-place winner in the industry category at last year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. If you're looking for another surprising investigation into the criminal justice system, check out Bear Brook from New Hampshire Public Radio, hosted by me, Jason Moon. Bear Brook is back with an update on our second season. Jason Carroll is serving life in prison for a murder he says he did not commit. Now, the biggest development in the case in 35 years could lead us one step closer to the truth. Listen to the complete second season of Bear Brook, now available wherever you get your podcasts. So far, everything I've told you about the mysterious woman fleeing Columbia University and then John Campbell fighting to get her college records, all of that happened in 2006. 
Now we're going to turn back the clock a few years earlier to 2001. Picture this scene, the quad at Catholic University in Washington, D.C., a big green expanse with leafy trees and gray stone buildings. There are lots of excited college kids strutting about. They were here for a debate tournament. One of these students was a 19-year-old named Ian Fleischman. Ian was a cadet at West Point, where he was on the policy debate team. And it was here on this quad at Catholic University that Ian first spotted her. She was a a very attractive woman, relatively short brown hair. She had a great smile uh, and a fun laugh. I remember that. So they get to talking. She introduced herself. Natalie. I knew her as Natalie. Natalie was not competing. She had debated in other tournaments in the past. But that day, she was just there, hanging out with some friends. She told Ian that she wasn't currently enrolled in college and that she had a pretty unusual job. She introduced herself as a, as a professional chess player, which was interesting because uh, I'd never met a professional chess player. Natalie said she had a manager in Germany and that she traveled around the country playing in tournaments. Ian was intrigued. Soon after this, they started dating, which wasn't so easy because they didn't live near one another. Natalie always seemed to be on the road, traveling for her job. And Ian, well, he was at West Point, where he had a strict curfew and couldn't leave campus without a pass. So they chatted online and talked a lot over the phone. Ian remembers leaning out his dorm window to get a better cell signal and talking late into the night, long after lights out. His roommate, David Leibovich, remembers hearing some of these conversations. And he also chatted with Ian about his new girlfriend. But David, he wasn't entirely buying Natalie's story. You know, he, he shared with me the little detail of, oh, she's a uh, professional chess player, but she's got this manager that has all the money, and if she needs money, she has to email him, and he has to respond and give her the money. It was this really odd, and I remember saying to, to Ian at the time, it's like, yeah, man, something about that just doesn't seem right. David is quick to add that Ian is a really smart guy, extremely talented. In fact, Ian was such a good student that he was awarded a set of gold stars, which he wore on his uniform. There was a term for guys like Ian at West Point, star men. They were the guys who were going places. All that being said, David suspects that Ian was perhaps blinded by love because he missed other slightly suspicious things about Natalie. One other kind of odd thing that she did was she uh, she sent him some cookies and said, hey, these are, you know, homemade cookies. And I remember looking at them and I was like, Ian, those are suspiciously round. Like she just got the little two cookies and just cut them up and, and baked them. Ian says his old roommate, well, may have been onto something. I mean, like, in retrospect, where would she have made these cookies, right? Like she was living out of her car, traveling the country, going, I mean, you know. She did always like to stay in, uh, in like, uh, extended stay places, but I doubt you can uh, use those uh, kitchenettes to make perfectly round cookies. But at that point, Ian said he had already bought into Natalie's whole story, that she was a chess champion with a German manager who traveled the country and occasionally hung out at debate tournaments. And so if you 
start with the acceptance of that as your as your starting point. Some of these small minor things over time, I think you know, it's easy to gloss over, right? Because you've you've already accepted the most ridiculous thing as true. And honestly, when you're dealing with somebody that you you genuinely care for, that you have spent a long time building up a relationship with, I think it's easy to to miss a lot of those, you know, smaller things or to forgive them because you trust the person enough to accept the excuse or the explanation that they give you. Natalie talked a little bit about her own family. She told him about her mother who had died and whom she adored. And a bit about her stepfather, too. She said that he was abusive, that he was stalking her, and that occasionally he would find her and she would have to flee. At one point, she told Ian about an incident. That he had found her someplace in Tennessee in a hotel room and threatened her with an iron, like to beat her with an iron. All of this was upsetting to Ian. I mean, it, it didn't really have the option to to essentially run to her to protect her. And so that, I mean, that did tug at my heartstrings. At some point, Ian says she told him that she was changing her name from Natalie Fisher to Natalie Bowman. Same first name, just a different last name. Ian says, as best as he can recall, she said that she was doing this to protect herself, which made sense to Ian under the circumstances. And for him, it didn't change who she was. It was the same Natalie. I mean, she was the same person, regardless of the moniker that she was she was using. Um, she had the same flaws, the same loves, the same laughs. On several occasions, Ian brought Natalie home to meet his parents. He said that his mother, Shirley Fleischman, welcomed Natalie into their home with open arms. I mean, everyone's going to tell you that their mom is the most loving and caring person in the world, right? But for me, my mom is, I think, the most loving and caring person. And she unconditionally accepted and loved Natalie because of the relationship that that I had with her. And this relationship between Ian and Natalie was serious and at times tumultuous. It was an emotional relationship uh, from uh, the moment we met. I think there, we were you know, madly in love or fighting uh, or somewhere in between or both at the same time for the course of a year or so before we eventually uh, broke up. The breakup happened in part because of geography. Natalie decided she wanted to go to college in California. And she essentially gave me the ultimatum of um, quit West Point and move to California while I go to Cal State Fullerton and get my degree or we're going to break up. And I seriously considered leaving West Point. So there was Ian, a star student at West Point, literally a star man. And he was going to walk away from that for her. Ian wrestled with his decision. And then one day, it all came to a head. One of my mentors, you know, from the debate team, eventually found, like, went out into the field at West Point during a, a field exercise that summer, found me in my tent, and dragged me off into the wood line to yell at me and tell me that I was making a terrible mistake if I thought that I was going to leave the military to run off to California after some girl. So Ian stayed at West Point, and they broke up. But it didn't end badly. 
In fact, after the breakup, Natalie even reached out to Ian's mom, Shirley Fleischman, to ask for a letter of recommendation to Columbia. Shirley was a university professor, so this letter would carry some weight. Now, you may be thinking, that's weird. Who asks their ex-boyfriend's mother for a letter of rec? But here was the really weird part. Natalie explained that, to protect herself, she had changed her name once again. She was now going by Brooke Henson. Yes, the very woman who went missing from Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, back in 1999. So, Shirley Fleischman agrees to help. She writes a letter of recommendation. And this is the letter that both John Campbell and Don Long find in the Columbia records. The letter that leads them to the Fleischmans. When they finally connect, they learn much of what I've just told you. Ian's dad, Fred, had been suspicious of Natalie for a long time. So suspicious that he'd been looking for clues about who she really was. He shared his suspicions with investigators. When we spoke to him, Fred turned over a very important piece of evidence. That's Don, the Secret Service agent. He says that Fred claimed, on one occasion, he had to move Natalie's car. It was blocking his driveway, as I recall. It was like a one-lane driveway. And we went in the car to move the car out of the way to get his car out. He was a little bit suspicious of her anyways, and he looked in the uh, glove box and he found an ID for Esther Reed. Esther Reed. Now, who is that? Once again, the plot had thickened. The authorities scrambled to figure out who Esther Reed was. Turns out, she was yet another missing woman, roughly the same age as Brooke Henson, who had vanished from Washington State back in 1999, the same year that Brooke had gone missing. So what the hell was going on here? John Campbell had an initial hunch. I'm like, this is a serial killer because I got people who I can't have somebody using somebody's names. I got Brooke Henson, I know, I'm I'm pretty sure is dead. I got Natalie Bowman, I can't find her. I got uh, Natalie Fisher, I can't find her. She's disappeared and I got Esther Reed and she's a missing person. But that theory didn't hold up, because eventually, with a little more digging, John concluded that two of the women, Natalie Fisher and Natalie Bowman, were in fact alive. As far as the investigators could tell, this mystery woman was still out there. Maybe her real name was Esther Reed, or maybe not. But she appeared to be a serial identity thief who just kept on taking over new personas. The question was, why? Because there was no obvious motive. It just didn't make sense. She was enrolled in Columbia University as Brooke Henson. So (laughs) it's an Ivy League school. It costs tons of money to go to school there. Why would you enroll under an assumed name? It doesn't make any sense. As soon as the gig's up, your degree is worthless. You don't have a degree anymore. It's not you. (laughs) So why would you spend all kinds of money doing that? John felt that all of these deceptions, so elaborate, so involved, had to serve some grander purpose, like they had to be covering for something. 
he briefly considered the possibility that this woman was a drug mule. But then he turned to another theory, the one that he ultimately came to believe was true. And here's how he came to it. He learned that this mystery woman had dated another West Point cadet and a Naval Academy midshipman. A hypothesis began to form in his mind. As he saw it, she was targeting military personnel. Not just that, look at who Ian Fleischman was, a star man. What's more, apparently this mystery woman had a manager or a handler overseas who sent her money, and she seemed to be a master at creating and maintaining aliases. So, John typed up an email to the U.S. Army CID, the Criminal Investigation Division. He laid out all the facts and began to explain his most promising theory about the mystery woman at Columbia. He read that email back to me. Here's part of it. The motives of this woman are not clear. It does not appear that she uses her stolen identities for monetary gain, but actually adopts the identities in order to live near U.S. military personnel and attend universities. While I am not prepared to say this woman is a spy acting on behalf of a foreign country, her behavior fits the profile of a spy far better than that of the average identity thief. Espionage. That's what John was intimating, perhaps more than intimating. John read over what he'd written to Army investigators and then hit send. At this point, John had followed his leads a very, very long way from Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. This had started off as a search for Brooke Henson, a kind-hearted young woman who'd gone missing and perhaps was murdered. Now it looked as if Brooke were just one of several people whose identities had been stolen. And if John's hunches were correct, the perpetrator of all this was a spy. John held on to the hope that if he could just talk to Esther Reed, he would find the answers to so many of his questions, and that she might have some intel about what had happened to the real Brooke Henson. But that was a stretch. This was quickly turning into a wild goose chase, following a tip that was taking him far away from his original case. I remember the chief asking me, like, how far are you going to take this? (laughs) And I said, chief... Until I can interview Esther Reed, I can't clear this tip. Next time on Deep Cover. It never occurred to me, quite frankly, that I I would get caught or could get caught or that anyone would get hurt. I mean, I figured if I, you know, lived as Brooke for the rest of my life, nothing would ever happen. Cover is produced by Amy Gaines and Jacob Smith. It's edited by Karen Shakurji. Mastering by Jake Gorski. Our show art was designed by Sean Carney. Original scoring and our theme was composed by Luis Guerra. Fact-checking by Arthur Gompertz. Special thanks to Mia Lobel, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg. 
I'm Jake Halpern. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling, because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern. And this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus.